Amen. Well, uh, John uh, continues writing the Revelation. Uh, He continues this portion of what is a parenthetical portion of Revelation, which means there are parentheses in a sense. From chapter 10 uh, up through verse 13 of chapter 11. We mentioned last week it might be helpful if just uh, you put a little parentheses uh, before uh, chapter 10 and maybe a little parentheses uh, after verse 13. It's just a, a little helpful thing in our studying. So you, as you read it, you'll realize it's not exactly advancing the chronology of uh, the end times, but rather giving a bit of a 30,000 foot view um, and then sometimes zooming into a 10 foot view of what's happening uh, during some of this time. So uh, interesting chapter we get into here chapter 11 verse 1 where John says then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying rise and measure the temple of God the altar and those who worship there and so this parentheses continues and in verse 1 John is given a fat max you know what I mean Uh, He's given a Stanley, he's given a tape measure, a 25-footer, I think, you know, and he's told to go measure the temple. He's given a measuring rod, a yardstick in a sense. And interesting that John's role goes from being an observer to everything that's happened is he has a little bit of participation. He's personally involved here in chapter 11. And uh, chapter 11 is going to take us a bit back to... uh, Uh, Zechariah chapter 2, and it'll just give us a little bit of some uh, uh, synonymous activity that's happening as Zechariah also measured um, the temple back in uh, the rebuilding and and the retaking of Jerusalem after the exile. And so this interesting passage comes where it says, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now what's interesting about that is by the time John had, had written this and seen the revelation, uh, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed for about 25 years. And so John, just a, a, a man who lived in a day where he had seen uh, Solomon's temple, he had seen the rebuild of it by Herod's, in Herod's temple's portion, uh, he had witnessed uh, Jesus come in and overturn the tables, he'd witnessed the sacrificial system, uh, he had witnessed uh, the day of Pentecost and the, the following preaching that would happen as the church would meet on Solomon's porch there in the book of Acts uh, at the temple. And, and then he saw the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24 where the Romans would destroy uh, the temple and not one stone would be left upon another. And so John had witnessed the temple And the destruction of the temple. And now he's in this futuristic prophecy where he's told to go measure the temple again. And you can only imagine. You know, I I always have dreams where I am transported back uh, to the house I grew up in, in Klamath Falls. And I'm, you know, going through the house and I'm reliving all of these memories. And, you know, and recently my old home came up for sale and I was able to see the Zillow pictures of this house that I'd grown up in and have such sweet memories on this ranch that we lived on. And, uh, and those memories come back, you know, 
And here, uh, John the Revelator is transported back, you know, almost as if in a dream, to see that old home, to see that old house of God, to see that temple that had been destroyed by the Romans, and now he's taking measurements, um, what would seem room by room, but more uh, section by section, and where the altar, the holy place, the place of the altar, and then an interesting thing we'll look at in a minute, he was even to measure those who worshipped there. Take a stock of the people who would be worshiping at that point. Uh, now, this is incredible history, and it's something we're going to get in uh, next week, and we're going to take some time and go back to the book of Daniel and look at the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 and see how fantastic the word of the Lord is and the prophecies of the Lord, how exact they are, and that the Lord would say that the temple uh, we're going to see end times, uh, an end times temple. Historically, there were two temples uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, the first was built by uh, King Solomon after David. And I'll have a little picture here. This is, of course, not a real picture. There weren't drones and helicopters and stuff back then. But, uh, of course, an artistic rendering uh, as well as a little model. King Solomon created the first temple, fulfilling the promise to uh, his destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when Babylon came and took Judah captive in 587 BC. And then as Judah went back into the land of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel rebuilt that temple and uh, Herod would make it even larger and greater until the Romans' destruction of it uh, in 70 A.D. And so, interesting, in chapter 11, this temple where this measurement is taking place.
and half a time, which would be three and a half years, we're going to want to get used to hearing the, the language of 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. These are important numbers in eschatology and understanding end times as they speak of half of that seven-year tribulation period. Now, why would this outer court need to be left to the Gentiles? Well, currently, if you look at the Temple Mount, this is Mount Moriah being viewed from the Mount of Olives. You're looking across the Kidron Valley. Uh, you're looking upon the Temple Platform. And for about a thousand years or so, uh, the Dome of the Rock of the Muslims has been placed there upon the Temple Mount. The Temple's gone. The Romans destroyed that. Uh, and the Muslims believe that this is the, the very rock that, uh, that Abra or rather, uh, that uh, the prophet of, of Muhammad, thank you, uh, that Muhammad ascended with the angel Gabriel, uh, and the Jews believe it's where uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. So it's between the Jews and the Muslims, it is a very hotly contested, hotly coveted piece of real estate and currently the Muslims have dibs on the land and foreigners are able to visit this place. No non-Muslims are able to visit, although occasionally uh, you're able to get up there for a quick tour. And one of my four trips, I had access to go up on the Temple Mount to walk around and to uh, get up right up to uh, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, but it is there where the Dome of the Rock, uh, which is considered the third most holiest site in Islam after Mecca, after Medina, uh, this is a very special spot to the Muslims. And they would not be giving it up uh, without some, some, some warfare, without some battles. Interestingly enough, there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, we'll look at it in the weeks to come where we see that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week. 
Okay, so one thing that the Antichrist is going to do, we studied this back in chapter 6. He's this man on a white horse uh, with a bow and no arrows, with a a leafy crown upon his head. Uh, We know that he's going to make some promises of peace for seven years. One week is seven years. It's kind of like saying a dozen donuts. Uh, One week would be speaking biblically of seven years. And he's going to make this covenant. It's going to be a false covenant. It's going to be a false peace in the Middle East. And halfway through that period, Daniel tells us, he's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering in the temple. How do you bring an end halfway through the tribulation, halfway through that seven years? How do you bring an end to sacrifice and offering at the temple if there's no temple rebuilt? But the question is, how do you rebuild the temple when the Dome of the Rock is sitting on the Temple Mount, when it is sitting in the place of the Holy of Holies? Well, there have to be some sort of battle or some sort of, uh, you know, conquest uh, to tear down the Dome of the Rock and to rebuild the temple, this third temple in Jerusalem, or... Interestingly enough, a few decades ago, a professor from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem named Dr. Asher Kaufman had his research work about the Temple Mount published. After many years of painstaking investigation, Dr. Kaufman declared that the former Jewish temples did not rest on the spot where the Dome of the Rock stands but rather the temple sat to its north. There is now a small gazebo-like structure to the northwest of the Dome of the Rock. And according to Kaufman's findings, the Holy of Holies of the first temple, the first two temples, is located exactly where that gazebo stands today. The Muslims have a name for that gazebo, the Dome of the Tablets. And so it seems quite possible that the spot of the gazebo is where the Holy of Holies stood, which held the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the two stone tablets on which was, which was written the Ten Commandments. Now this all seems so far off, doesn't it? It almost seems like a work of fiction. You know, how is it possible when, and I'm just going to throw this up again uh, quickly here, uh, how is it possible that the uh, temple, this is so giant, this is so ginormous, how could this be built, and when could this happen? It's a pipe dream. It's so far off, and yet, for as long as I've been going to Israel, since uh, two, the year 2001, there has been an institute called the Temple Institute, whose sole desire is to see the rebuilding of the temple. They are thrilled that Zionism is occurring, that ever since May 14th, 1948, and we'll look at that in the weeks to come, Israel has become a nation again. People are coming from all over, back to their homeland, back as Jews to Israel. And what is needed now for those Jewish people coming back, but this final symbol of hope, that is the rebuilding of the third temple. And so uh, the uh, Temple Institute... They're in Jerusalem. 
uh, has been spending their time researching what the articles of the temple looked like. They're rebuilding all of the furniture and all of the furnishings of the temple. They've got the high priestly garments made. And, and you can go in. It's a museum. We go into the Temple Institute. I've seen the high priestly garments. I've seen the menorahs, the candlesticks. Uh, I've seen the different uh, trumpets that have been made. Uh, placed prominently in a couple locations uh, around the Temple Mount are uh, the menorahs that have been made or the candlesticks. And uh, many more exciting articles that show that they are serious about rebuilding this uh, third temple. Now, you can research and you'll find that there's been a crowdfunding towards the, re- the finances needed to rebuild this uh, third temple. And I want to read to you from the New York Jewish Week this article that says, I think it's time for me to put my glasses on. It says, though elements of the modern age will enhance the new model of the temple, the Temple Institute remains dedicated to recreating the days of yore. The Institute mission statement claims they are, quote, dedicated to every aspect of the biblical commandment to build the holy temple of, and then they can't say the word God, but I can, God, on the Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, including the sacrificial rituals that haven't been performed in 2,000 years. Almost $17,000 of the $100,000 goal has already been achieved at the time of this article. This beginning sum will pay for the, quote, architectural plans of the actual construction. The campaign description uh, explains Still, and here, listen to this part of the article, still there is no explanation for how the Institute will get around the rather significant problem of the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aghasa Mosque, the two Islamic structures that currently occupy Mount Moriah. Judging by current situations in Israel, the spontaneous removal of these two structures would cause some unrest let alone another world war. Despite these concerns, the campaign is off to an auspicious start. On the Teshibah, Jews around the world gather to pray for their speedy return to Jerusalem and an end to a prolonged and persecuted exile. goes on to say, if the Temple Institute succeeds in its ambitious plan, that day might be headed our way sooner than anticipated okay so we know that the signs of the time and the birth pangs are showing us that these things the day of the lord is nearer than ever we see the possibilities of the prophecies of daniel and of john and revelation coming true within our lifetime okay the only thing that's missing for the temple institute right now is uh The Ark of the Covenant, there's still mystery as to where that is. And then they've got to somehow be able to get up on the Temple Mount and start, you know, surveying and find out how this thing will fit up there. And how are we going to either kick the Dome of the Rock off of here or how are we going to maybe build around it? And according to scripture, the outer court of where the temple sat will be filled with Gentiles at the time of this. Now, real quick, there's another article that goes on to say 
that uh, the Temple Institute has also begun raising red cattle in Israel, thanks to the McKinnons and your guys' breeding plan. They have been, thank you for ushering in the end times with those red McKinnon heifers. I'm kidding. Uh, The Temple Institute has begun raising uh, red cattle in Israel and has put decades into having the perfect red heifer for sacrificing. And then I quote uh, the, the main spokesperson for the Temple Institute, make no mistake, this project is no less than the first stage of the reintroduction of biblical purity into the world, a prerequisite for the building of the third temple, okay? Now, it's always fun going to the Temple Institute with my pastor, Rob Verdine, because he loves to evangelize in there. And, and so one time we went in there and there was our tour guide was a pregnant woman from Brooklyn, uh, Jewish, who had gone home and was now uh, in Israel working in the Temple Institute. And if there's one person you don't want to get in an argument with, it is a pregnant Jewish woman from Brooklyn who's back trying to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And, and my pastor just very gently, as she shows us the model of the temple and shows us, and he just says, hey, I'm just curious, have you ever heard how everything in the temple is a type that points to Jesus being the Messiah and his sacrifice being the atonement for the sins of the world? You have no idea how offensive that is to me, that you would come in here and spout such things. And, well, you, it's offensive to me. We can't even have a dialogue about this here. Uh, but in other uh, times, it's funny because uh, Rob has said to the tour bus as we get ready to go in, normally I'm evangelizing in here, but it's gotten red hot. And so I'm just going to mind my P's and Q's. I'm going to be quiet. We'll just go through peacefully. And as the tour's going on, he's You know, and, uh, and I think it was actually a college student who you can kind of see the face of the tour guide up at the top of that video there. He's talking about, oh, this is going to be so great and we're going to have the temple. And one of the college students on the trip says, so how have your sins been atoned for since without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And for 2000 years, where have the Jews found I know, oh, like God wants blood. He doesn't care about blood as if he likes a meat lasagna more than a vegetarian lasagna, you know, and nowhere do we see that, you know, there has to be this. No, like the Lord never removed the need for sacrifice to take away sins. And, And they just started evangelizing to this man and they stumped him. I mean, the leader of the Temple Institute was stumped by some college students who were full of the spirit and were evangelizing there. So uh, we always pray for this, uh, the, the head of the institute and the people that work there, that they'll come to know Jesus as the Messiah. And yet, how is this temple to be built there? We believe that it's, we'll look at it in the weeks to come, this treaty of peace. It's a false peace. It's not a lasting peace. Uh, it's going to be for three and a half years until in that rebuilt temple, Antichrist sets up an image of himself and demands to be worshipped in the temple. And that will begin the second half of the seven years, which is called the Great Tribulation Period, and it's even more severe. And so uh, the prophecy in Revelation 11 is John's way of predicting the preservation of the Jewish people and their final salvation. Uh, Lehevre wrote, Then John is instructed to measure or evaluate the worshipers themselves. 
And we're going to see that those worshipers, because they're still offering these sacrifices, have not been born again. They're still, as the book of Hebrews says, trusting in the blood of bulls and goats. Now, moving on into verse 3 of our chapter, we're going to see the two witnesses. This is a, a unique group of individuals in the New Testament. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Okay, remember, we're still in the parentheses of it all. So during this half of this time, they'll be clothed in sackcloth, and they'll be prophesying. And interesting, in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says that God has not left himself without witness throughout human history. And that is still the case in the tribulation period. He has not left himself without witness. And here are two of them. And it's emphasizing here not the months, but the number of days, uh, 1260 days, which every day they will be witnessing, they will be wearing this garment of sackcloth, not comfortable, heavy, coarse, not fashionable, but a symbol of mourning for sin and repentance and the need for humility. These two witnesses, verse 4 tells us, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. I can certainly understand how just taking the book of Revelation by itself and reading it, there's just all kinds of just, you know, just confusing moments where you just don't even know where to begin. And yet, so much of what is spoken in the book of Revelation is commentated and foretold back in the Old Testament. And so here we have a specific help in the writing that these two witnesses are two olive trees. And you're just like, I don't even know what's this two olive trees, you know. Uh, and the two lampstands, they're olive trees, and their lampstands, oh, you know, make up your mind, okay? It's just so errant, the Bible, and, and they're standing before the God of the earth. What is even happening? Well, why don't you turn to Zechariah with me, chapter 4, verse 1. And why don't we, we'll show a few images here, and why don't you do a little work here? Zechariah chapter 4, you can flip over there. Toward the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 4, 1. Now the angel who talked with me, let's throw these images up of the, the lampstand so they can get, uh, get a view here. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said to him, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. So we have a bit of a, a menorah-looking lampstand here. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right hand of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the chosen one to go and rebuild the, the second temple. Okay, And uh, he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. They are the eyes, oh, I'm sorry, I, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so we have these olive trees. They're pumping out oil in the scripture. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the spirit is just flowing from these trees into this light or into this lamp. And there's this amazing prophecy that we even prayed out uh, last night at the Pulse prayer meeting over our church and over the work of the ministry today, that it would not be by our might, not by our human strength, nor by our power that we would muster up, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel, that you should become a plain? And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so there's still some mystery there, all right? However, we know that there's two individuals full of the Holy Spirit, dripping the Holy Spirit. Uh, They're called anointed ones. They are men, and they're standing in the presence of the Lord. And we see that they make an appearance in the tribulation period in Jerusalem. They're dressed in sackcloth and ashes. They're there for three and a half years, and every day of those years, they are prophesying. They are preaching the word of the Lord. Who are these guys? Verse 5 of our text in Revelation 11 says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. I mean, they are little Godzillas walking around Jerusalem. Control yourself, you know. Have a breath mint, a tic-tac perhaps. Um, I tease. Better be careful. Fire could come. And so, who are these guys? If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. Well, interesting. In 2 Kings 1, 10 through 12, Elijah speaks to a captain of 50 who'd come to capture him. And says, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Then he sent him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he said to him, man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And so we we know the story goes on like, Next guy comes, he's like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm a dad, you know. <laughs> Can we just maybe not do this and maybe just come with us, right? And uh, Jeremiah 5.14 says, this, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire and the people wood and it shall devour them. And so Jeremiah was a prophet. That is that when he spoke, it was like fire 
coming forth. But, but interesting, we do see the prophets of the Old Testament, a little bit of this picture, Elijah especially, this fire coming down from heaven uh, and, and consuming the guys that would be after them. Uh, they are, these two witnesses are the untouchables. They are untouchable almost until their work is done. It's kind of God's version of the witness protection program. And interesting, a Baptist missionary to China named Lottie Moon said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Faithful missionary to the Alka Indians, Oregon's own Jim Elliott, had the same conviction as Lottie Moon. And in a letter to his parents, he wrote, Remember, you are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. And interesting, I'm reading uh, Adoniram Judson biography right now, and he's been arrested in Burma because of a war Burma is having with the British. So all foreigners might be spies, and he's imprisoned in a horrific prison camp, uh, just thinks he's going to die every day. Nancy Judson is doing her best to save him and feed him, and it's just a horrible time. It's, it's kind of just, it's a rough, it's a rough read right now. It's really hard, and Adoniram Judson is like Paul often. He just despairs even of life. Uh, at one point during almost a forced Bataan death march, uh, he just, he's ready to jump off a cliff, and he's just trying to get his, the man he's shackled to to consider doing it. Uh, and so, man, a little bit of a different time of suffering that he's going through. But, but we have these two witnesses, and in a sense, they are the untouchables. They are immortal as long as God is using them and, and use, doing his work through them here. In verse 6, they have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So with one third of the world's water supplies already poisoned as we've studied in Revelation, we read of chapter 8, the lack of rain and the turning of water into blood will greatly increase the shortage of fresh drinking water upon the earth. Now, also we see that this is something Elijah was familiar with. In 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these three years or these years except at my word. And then in chapter 18, verses 41 through 46, you read that also at the sound of his word, it began to rain again. And so possibly, there's two witnesses here, possibly one of them is Elijah. We know Elijah didn't die, but he was carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And so possibly he's making another appearance. Uh, maybe he's one of those anointed ones, full of the Spirit, standing in the presence of the Lord. Possibly the other one is Moses, as we see that they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues. And it's interesting that in Matthew 17, in the Mount of Transfiguration, we read that, behold, this is in Jesus' time with the disciples, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared with them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here these tabernacles, 
one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So perhaps the two anointed ones that we read of, and just perhaps, you know, there's a different, some think it's Joshua who helped rebuild the temple and Zerubbabel. It doesn't really matter, um, but uh, it's interesting to see some of the similarities to these prophets. And um, verse 7 says, when they finish their testimony, this is back in Revelation eleven seven. when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And so there is a period when their time is done, and the beast or the Antichrist, we'll see him in chapter 13 of Revelation, we'll see him a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, he makes war with these two guys. He is sick and tired of their prophesying. He is sick and tired of what they're doing uh, as they're consuming people with fire. Anyone that disagrees and, and comes against them. And so he is going to do what no one else has been able to do. Kill the prophets. And no doubt this will go a long way in gaining support from the crowds. Getting rid of these menaces of society. And verse 8 says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so it's a pagan thing of disgrace to leave dead bodies rotting out uh, in, in the open. And we see that with, um, on, on uh, Mount Gilboa with Saul and his son Jonathan as they were killed in battle, that they were beheaded and then their bodies were pinned to the wall there in Bet Shan uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and here we see that these two prophets, they're left out in the Middle East sun, just the heat and the scorching sun uh, up against their bodies for three days. And uh, it's in this place, interestingly, that's given the term, it's called Sodom. This city where they are is called Sodom. It's a city that represents what is abominable, what is immoral, and what is wicked. It's also called Egypt, uh, a nation which symbolized idolatry, oppression, slavery, and suffering. So where were these two witnesses? They were in Sodom. No, no, they were in Egypt. Well, which is it? There's uh, specificity, if I may, that it is where our Lord was crucified. Where is that? Jerusalem. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now it's so neat, in the midst of this prophecy, this future, this parentheses that's here, that there's just these specific things that are like, hey, in the midst of all the, hey, Jerusalem, right? A very specific place. Here's the spiritual climate, but it's the town where our Lord was crucified. It's a literal town with literal events taking place in it. Verse 9, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Something that's so incredible is that at the time this was written, it was very hard for the readers to comprehend how all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, 
and all nations could see these two witnesses dead for three and a half days. How is this possible? This is, this is allegory, you know, this is, this is just a type, there's something else, there's something spiritual happening here. And yet we know nowadays, this is nothing. This is common. This is something a high schooler can do or a middle, heck, my three-year-old knows how to use the camera on a phone and, you know, FaceTime with grandma, you know? And so between, you know, satellite TV and news networks and, you know, social media and FaceTime and all of that, the whole world can be aware of these two terrorists that were going around telling everybody prophecies about God and just consuming them with fire from their mouth. And now they's dead. And this, you know, we'll just call him the Antichrist. It's probably not what they call him. Yay, Antichrist, you know. Uh, you know, but you know, yes, and he conquered them. And there they are, dead and bloating. And yeah, you know. And, and they, would, they just began to rejoice. It's so exciting for us to study the book of Revelation in the last days because for centuries, spiritual leaders told their congregations that Revelation was impossible to understand. But we can begin to get a grip uh, living in the closer days toward this. And it's interesting that verse 10 says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They will cheer that they are dead and they will make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You know, just cozy up with a nice glass of, you know, apple cider and nutmeg or whatnot, you know, and just, uh, hey, you know, here's a gift I got you. Happy two witnesses are dead day, you know. Oh, Days are merry and bright. You know, this, this is what's happening. Something's replacing Christmas. Perhaps it's called anti-Christmas. No? Okay. Uh, they are stoked and they gloat and they celebrate that these witnesses are dead. And verse 11 says, And after these three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And so you can just hear those odd Christmas mugs dropping on the ground, and people with mistletoe. You know, everyone who's gloating, they're dead, you know. What's the song in you know, Wizard of Oz? You know, the wicked witch, the wicked witch is dead, you know. They're like, yeah, they're dead. And then the breath of life comes in them. And in a very similar picture of, you know, they rise from the dead and they stand up. And you can imagine, like, party's over, you know, what's the return policy on these gifts that I was handing out, you know, can I target, what are you doing, can we get this back, you know, get some money back for this, because our celebration is over. And these two witnesses have a visible rapture of sorts. These two faithful witnesses are vindicated by God in the sight of of their enemies. And verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so, really, great tragedy takes place, but it is the sovereign judgment of God as these witnesses ascend. But with great tragedy often brings great revival. 
seems to be some genuine conversion of a great multitude of Jews in Jerusalem. They feared the Lord. They had reverence towards God. And this is one of the first time. Normally they're just cursing God and hoping to die. And here they fear the Lord and give glory to the God of heaven. Now, if you just take your Bible and go back a chapter to chapter 10, you remember a great angel giving John a little book, right? A little book that when he eats it, at first it's sweet and then it becomes bitter in his stomach. And finally, John takes that and indeed he bites it, he bites into it and it, it is sweet and sour and uh, all sorts of great Chinese food jokes there that I'm way too mature to bring up at this point. You have to listen to last week's sermon. But verse 11 of chapter 10 tells us that really the, the behind this book that he eats is prophecy about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And so right into that, we get into these two uh, witnesses, <clears throat> the temple, the two witnesses, and many people, many nations, many tongues, and that addition of kings, which is rare in such a statement. And already in our text, nations, tribes, tongues, they're celebrating that the two witnesses are dead, and then those witnesses are vindicated in their resurrection and in their rapture, and now we see a great many people uh, give glory to the God in heaven. And that leads us, keep, keep in mind that, that that angel said, now you've got to go prophesy of peoples, tribes, tongues, and, and kings. Okay, so keep that in mind as we move on through the rest of the chapter here. Because verse 14 sa says that the second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. Remember, there was an angel that was, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Such great torture is coming upon you. This is going to be a horrible time. Uh, anguish upon you um, and horror upon you. And, and this third woe is coming quickly uh, as we see the seventh trumpet judgment take place. Okay? In verse 15, the, then the seventh angel sounds or sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, seventh trumpet judgments happens. John is prophesying of many peoples, nations, tribes, tongues, and kings. And the seventh trumpet jump, uh, trumpet jump, trumpet judgment, jump it, happens. And this great declaration of all the kingdoms of the world. It's finally happening. The prayers that we've been praying since children's church of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here we are and, and the kingdoms of the Lord, his work is happening. The kingdoms are becoming and have become the kingdoms of our Lord and the Lord's Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And this beautiful text of his reigning, he will reign forever. And ever. It's as if the title deed to earth has been reclaimed. The seals have been opened. The seals leading to the trumpets. The trumpets have been sounded. And the kingdoms of the world have become Jesus' kingdoms, even by this point. 
in the tribulation. And as such a statement is sounded forth, verse 16, the 24 elders, or as I read in an old school writing, four and 20 elders. I'm going to start talking like that. Four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. Four and 20 elders up in the sky. Okay. Um, I'm working on an album. Four and 20 elders sitting before God on their thrones. We've studied this in our understanding. I humbly say, I believe this is a representation of the church in heaven. The rapture has taken place. There's, there's uh, Jews and Gentiles who've been saved, uh, represented by 12 of the tribes, 12 of the disciples. And, uh, and it's the church in heaven uh, falling down on their faces, worshiping God. Verse 17 saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is in the past, who was, and who is to come. And, and it's just an incredible worship. There's, this is about the third worship service that we see these elders participate in, if I'm correct. And uh, in their worship, they worship for different things. They worship because God is the God of creation in chapter 5. They worship because God is the... Um, because he has been slain, has redeemed us to God by his blood. And now we see they are worshiping, and it's a, it's a thankful heart. It's a, a Eucharisto in the Greek. It's giving of thanks in their worship. And, and in this threefold, who was and who is and who is to come. And why are they thanking the Lord? And I mentioned this last week in our worship service. They're thanking the Lord, not so much for you know, what he's done and, and, you know, thanks for rescuing me from that car accident. Thanks for providing for my power bill this week. Thanks for, you know, healing me of this really bad canker sore or whatever it might be. All these things that we really love to like thank the Lord for. But there's this interesting thanks being sung to the Lord because, verse 17 says, you have taken your great power and reigned. Such a beautiful statement of worship. We are thankful to you, Lord, because what you've done with your power is like nothing no other king has ever done in the history of the world. You have reigned with that great power in justice. This is something that the heart of every man, woman, and child longs for. It's something that poems are written of. It's something the Psalms write. We long for the day when justice and equity are the foundation of a throne. And that is exactly what his throne is. It is a right, righteous, good, and just throne. And he takes it and he reigns. He reigns during the tribulation period. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's winning. And thanks comes from the, uh, from the presence of the Lord there. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So in his power, in his reigning, he just pours out wrath upon some ticked off nations. It's a reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2, how the nations were raging and they raised themselves up 
against the Lord and his Christ, Psalm chapter 2 says. And it says that the Lord laughs at them, like you're going to stand up against me, and he holds them in derision, the prophecy says in in Psalm chapter 2. And here we see in verse 18 the same thing. He's pouring out wrath upon them, but he rewards those who are servants. He rewards those who are saints, whether they're small, great, rich, or poor. But he destroys those who destroy the earth. I don't think this is some environmental statement that we can all just go green off of. I don't think that's what it's speaking of here. But those who kept the wrath of God coming and brought such destruction upon the earth, it was because they refused to bow the knee to the Lord and to the Christ. They decided to stand in their own self-righteousness and make their own way for salvation. And that ended in death for them. It ends in destruction for them. And I wonder if you're here today and if you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, you refuse to receive his gift of love and grace and compassion, his gift of forgiveness for your sins. You're too proud to receive his gift, knowing that it would require you to bow the knee before his lordship, making him the king of your heart and the king of your life. And I wonder if instead you exalt yourself, that you would even stand before God and declare your righteousness before God. The book of Romans says anyone who would just have the audacity to do so will have their mouth stopped. Well, I did this and I was part of the scouts and I was... says everyone's mouths will be stopped and they will be found a liar for the deeds of the flesh no one will be justified nothing that you do nothing that you are no pedigree of your bloodline your family tree grandpa start you know started this church over in you know charlottesville whatever it doesn't matter Stop resting in your achievements because they're like filthy rags before the throne of God. Stop your own mouth right now. Don't make God do it. And be broken before God. And receive the gift of his love and of his grace. That you can do what we're going to study in Polina tonight. You can go and you can tell everyone the good things that God has done for you. And how he's shown compassion on me, a sinner. Verse 19 says... Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. So interesting, we saw a temple on earth. Now we see a temple in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So we know that uh, Moses was told when he built the tabernacle, do everything just according to the blueprints. And the book of Hebrew tells us the reason for that was as they are direct models of the temple in heaven, the tabernacle in heaven. And so we know that there were specs given for the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And now we see there's an Ark in heaven. Maybe it's the same Ark. I don't know. The interesting thing is out of everything that we lost in the temple, no one knows what happened uh, when the Romans hauled away the Ark of the Covenant. Some people think it's like down in some African tribe in like a grass hut. You know, you can go down there and you can see the Ark of the Covenant. Other guys have said they found it in a cave underneath the temple mount. No one really knows though. No one's like bringing it out like, look what we've got. Um, We don't know where the ark is, but we know there's a heavenly ark there in the temple, the ark of his covenant seen in the temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake. And it is so good at the end of this chapter to be reminded of God's 
presence as we look at the temple. To be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people in every generation. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. We remember the covenant. And as the worship team comes back up, we know that that covenant, that Ark of that covenant, had inside of it the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. We know that it had within it a jar of manna, that angelic food. We know that it had Aaron's rod that miraculously budded. And we know that placed over the top of that box was the, the mercy seat. Okay, And at the end of each mercy seat were two cherubim. And these cherubim were carved. It's all made out of gold. And these two angels, they're facing the mercy seat. And if you know about the sacrificial system, whenever a lamb was slain to atone for the people's sins in the Old Testament, that blood was taken and was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And it's a picture of heaven, the throne room of heaven. As we've been studying Revelation, we see the throne room of God. And we see at the right hand of the Father sits the Son. On each side there are cherubim and they are worshiping and they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And we know from the scriptures that the blood of Jesus was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Charles Spurgeon said, It is so good for every Christian to be familiar with the mercy seat. To come before the heavenly tabernacle, even now as we close in worship, and to thank the Lord for being slain for us, for his blood being sprinkled, for fulfilling the covenant that we don't have to have the wrath of God upon us, but we can be forgiven and cleansed. We can have our conscience cleansed from evil deeds, and now we can be set apart to serve God with every breath within our lungs and every fiber of our being. And John chapter 5, verse 24, as we close out, says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. This is all pretty radical stuff, isn't it? Man, I went to Calvary Chapel today. Homeboy did a Google image search, you know, and he had all sorts of really grainy pictures of a tabernacle and a dome of the rock. And I don't really know what to think about all that. He's got YouTube videos for us to see about red heifers, you know. Apparently they're from Pal Butte. You know, I don't know. And, you know, there's speculation on how it all is going to go down. But there's no speculation about this. That the blood of the lamb that was sprinkled upon the mercy seat is sufficient to cleanse the, sins of, cleanse the sins of the world. And that if you would put your trust in Jesus today, that blood, it's been shed for you. All those things that you've done, all those rebellious things that you've just decided to go ahead and do, all those little things that if you're honest, and these are the things that keep you awake at night. These are the things that right before you're about to drift off into Never Never Land, you go, how am I going to answer for this? They, they make you swim in your bed at night. In the middle of the night, you wake up, go to the bathroom, you lay your head back down, and you're anxious about these things that you've done. And rightly so, because you will give an account for yourself to God, and you will be condemned unless you hear the words of life found in the scriptures and you believe them. I believe them. 
I think Adam closed it out singing in worship this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other hope is sinking sand. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. These people are dumb enough to be sending presents to each other on the two witnesses are dead day. <laughs> like, can you just be like, Jesus died for me. I'm going to be dumb enough to just say, amen, Lord, let that have been for me too. Take away my sins. And, and that John said, he who hears my word and believes in him shall have everlasting life. Everlasting. Sounds like some good life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life.